0: Good morning, everyone. Um, I unfortunately don't speak a word of Norwegian, and I I won't impose my attempts at um, martyrizing your language to you. Um, I'm very grateful for this invitation. I feel that it is a distinct honor for a German to be asked to give a keynote at a Norwegian military power seminar. I am uh, conscious of that, and I'm conscious of the responsibility. Um, And because I think that the way that you frame today's topic um, is distinctly provocative and is intended as a provocation. I intend to be provocative in my remarks. Um, I think that we are at a very serious time in our European and transatlantic history. I myself uh, used to be a journalist for a long time. I'm an international lawyer by training. I was a journalist for Die Zeit in Germany for over a decade, and I covered things like genocide in Rwanda, the Balkans wars, Afghanistan, uh, the NATO intervention in Kosovo. I've seen a couple of war zones, and I followed transatlantic disagreements and very, very harsh disagreements for more than 20 years. And I have to say to you that this is the worst time I have ever seen. It is, I am. I have never been so concerned about the depth and principal nature of the disagreements that we're seeing. And I have never been so worried about the po- potential implications of us not finding solutions to the security problems that we have. And it sometimes, I was just saying this to General Neatnik next to me, it sometimes feels like 1913, the sort of situation where people are sleepwalking into crisis because they make maximalist demands of each other without any intention of compromising, without any empathy for the position of the others, without any understanding of the consequences, of the potentially disastrous consequences of reckless language and reckless actions. Now, Let me perhaps begin with something that you may be expecting from me, which is what do these midterms in the United States mean for the topic on hand? Um, You will have followed them as much as I did. I think the outcome is a mixed one. It wasn't a blue tsunami for the Democrats, but it wasn't the Republicans holding the fort. It, I think, is generally reflective of the overall polarization of United States politics, both in Uh, the voter base, and I think in Washington, D.C., so we will see more of that. So played badly, the Democrats regaining the House could mean complete gridlock, the way we've seen in previous administrations. We saw under Clinton, we saw under Obama. But it is also an opportunity, an opportunity if the Democrats work in a manner that is bipartisan and constructive and is aimed at solving problems rather than just identifying them and then leaving them there. You can, however, expect more attention paid to Europe by Congress, particularly now that Congressman Dana Rohrabacher, who some have uh, jokingly referred to in Washington as the Republican representative for Moscow, um, is no longer the chairman of the House Subcommittee for Europe, a function in which he, in many ways, played into Russian interests, and prevented the tabling of crucial European issues. And that, I think, is going to change completely. But I think what, if there's one thing, if I I had to say in one line, in one sentence, what this midterm election showed us, despite its historical voter turnout, despite the fact that there are now more women in the House than ever before, more minorities, it is this, Trumpism is not reduced to Trump and it is not a historical aberration. That's the key message that I want to leave with you as far as these midterms are concerned. And that will also inform what I am about to say. Now, the other thing I want to say is that I've made myself a couple of notes. As you can see, I'm not going to read a speech to you. Um, And I have composed the sequence of my thoughts in such a way that I I hope that they will appeal both to the political and military practitioners here, the experts, as well to a wider audience. But please feel to wave at me. Feel free to wave at me if there's something that you think I'm not explaining uh, fully. Um, We can have Q&A afterwards, but if there's something that is entirely incomprehensible, please say so. The first point I want to make is uh, is that the 2017 National Security Strategy, which is a document that uh, the uh, Congress mandates a new incoming government to, uh, to, to explain its national security strategy, and this national security strategy in 2017 was the first one to say, to change the framing of American security strategy from international collaboration to great power competition. This was shocking to many and many European analysts at the time, I think it's fundamentally correct. This is the world that we are now in, and I I think it was high time that Europeans recognized this. But the question, of course, for us is, where do we fit in there? And in the first year of the Trump administration, the mainstream view was that the President of the United States has some very disruptive attitudes and, God knows, a very disruptive Twitter feed, but he will be normalized in the office. He will be normalized by his, the adults in the room, his cabinet members, the many seasoned professionals working in the administration. And so this is all a temporary aberration that we Europeans and other allies should just write out. And Exhibit A for this theory, of course, was and remains for many the reinforcement of NATO's presence in the East in deterrence and defense. Now, in the, uh, the essay that... Um, Carsten just kindly quoted that I wrote in February called Normal is Over, I argued that this is essentially wrong, wrong. essentially a misunderstanding of what is happening here. In fact, my argument is that Trump and Trumpism, the thinking that he represents, is a massive discontinuity. It It is here to stay. The elements of that massive discontinuity are Trump is the first American president to question the international liberal order as such. He is the first American president to articulate a fundamental critique of globalization, which he tellingly always refers to as globalism, as though it were a false belief, a false ideology, something that we just have to recant from, or to those of you who've seen the Matrix movies, um, people who believe in that have taken the wrong pill and should take the right pill. Actually, I mean, this will entertain you. I once had a conversation at the Munich Security Conference after I'd heard Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov give a speech, and which I found troubling. And I went out to the lobby, and I met um, the then Deputy Foreign Minister, later on Ambassador to NATO, Mr. Grushko, and said, Ambassador, do you, am I right in thinking that your Foreign Minister fundamentally thinks that we have all taken the wrong blue pill and that if we took the correct red pill, that we would see everything from the, the, from the viewpoint of, of Moscow. Is that, is, that, is that a fair and accurate representation of Russian thinking? And Grushko listened to me and said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, this critique of globalization, of global interdependence through the movement of goods, data, ideas, and people, is a critique of the world as we live in. It is a fundamental disagreement about the nature of the world that we live in. That's not something we have ever encountered from an American president. And it is, of course, as such, a massive wedge in transatlantic relations. Because this theory's implications for Europe are extremely serious. And in fact, if you listen closely to what this president and some of his more ideological advisers have to say about Europe, you will see that they see Europe through a lens of what I have called a triple war narrative. War wars, trade wars, and culture wars. And with a special hostility, unfortunately reserved for the European Union and implicitly for Germany, but that's by the by. That's a concern for Germans. Now that that was my analysis in February. How has this changed now that we're in November? I think we have seen some of my predictions sadly playing out. We are in the middle of not one but two trade wars, one of them being suspended. We're in the middle of a trade war with China and the trade war with Europe was suspended because of an agreement between Trump and EU Commission President Juncker to talk. These talks are currently being conducted between the USTR, the Trade Representative Lighthizer and Malmström, but they are not going very well. And fundamentally, this could break out again at any moment. We have sanctions on Turkey, on Iran, on Russia. Uh, We have, now that the midterms are concluded, there is a big Russia sanctions bill waiting. Um, And now that the Democrats own the House, you shouldn't think that this is something they disagree with with Republicans on. In fact, it's one of the few things that Democrats and Republicans agree on, and there will be massive Russia, shank, Russia sanctions coming down the road. Now, I personally agree with those Russia sanctions. I agree with Iran sanctions personally, but I also think that this American government is using tariffs and sanctions in the form of a weaponization of economic interdependence. They're being used in a way that is overbroad, that is in many ways reckless and that is, I think, colored by a distinct disregard for diplomacy and for the needs of allies. That's my concern with this instrument. And if you don't want to believe me, there have been a number of articles by American experts in foreign affairs recently, uh, including a former Treasury Secretary making exactly that point, which I can recommend to you. The problem, of course, is that in an interdependent world, uh, which is a fundamentally an, an an economic and political ecosystem, the sanctions instrument is a very blunt instrument, and you have to wield it with great responsibility and great care, and if you don't, there will be implications, and not just in the trade field. Then, of course, there is the culture war item. No American president has expressed support for authoritarian, illiberal authoritarians like this one. And I don't just mean Duterte, Putin, or Xi Jinping. I mean Orban. I mean Italy's government and Italy's de facto Prime Minister, Mr. Salvini, the Interior Minister. And that is a concern at a time when those authoritarians in Europe are preparing a run on the European Parliament in the next European elections in May. The European populists are no longer trying to get their countries outside of the EU. They're no longer trying to just flip European national governments, they're trying to flip the European project. So to express support for those authoritarians, who, by the way, all have excellent relationships with Russia, for an American president to to express support for those authoritarians at this time in this way has a distinct meaning that we shouldn't ignore. And if I may say this, I say all this with great sadness. I've always been a committed transatlanticist. I'm also a committed European. I've never seen an American White House behave in this way. Um, and it is a matter of not just concern to me as an analyst, but sadness to me as a citizen of Europe and, as a, and somebody living in Washington in a country that I love and that I've now, I'm now living in for the third time. Now, the theory in Washington among many professionals is that somehow you can insulate the security relationship from all this. All of us, including you Norwegians, have very good bilateral security cooperation with the Ministry of Defense and within, with the American uh, Department of Defense and within, and within NATO. We've also seen that this president is very much disinclined to wars. He doesn't want to go to war against Iran. Although, footnote to that, this administration was this close to a so-called bloody, nikes, uh, bloody, bloody nose strike on North Korea, which could have had huge uh, led, led to a huge loss of lives and would have had massive security ripple effects in Asia and elsewhere. But I think that with the president's rhetoric, with trade wars, with culture, and identity conflicts, with the extraordinary sequence of summits over the summer, the risk of accidental confrontation in the world has risen in a way that I have not seen in the last 20 years, and I think that we've not seen in the post-war period. We've seen the American president questioning the validity of Article 5 with regard to Montenegro. We've seen that he has announced his intention to cancel the INF Treaty, now, you can make an argument that the INF Treaty is, doesn't cover all the issues that it ought to cover. You can make the argument that the Russians have violated it. You can make the argument that we ought to be modernizing arms control, control treaties. All that, is, all that, I think, is a discussion worth having. But to announce the intent to cancel it without appropriate consultations with Europeans on whom this has a much greater impact than on American forces stationed in Europe is deeply unhelpful to the Alliance and destabilizes the security situation in Europe by the mere announcement. And then, of course, there is this administration's distinctly hostile attitudes to international law and multilateralism and international agreements. The Paris Climate Agreement was one of the first. They announced they would leave. Some of you may have seen the National Security Advisors' incendiary speech on the International Criminal Court. All this is not an incidental, it's not a footnote to this administration's security strategy, it's a key element. And then, of course, there's that famous meeting with Putin in Helsinki. We still don't know what happened there, because it was the president and the, Russian pre- the American president and the Russian president on their own. All of this, I would say to you, despite the reinforcement of NATO, despite the excellent collaboration between the American Department of Defense and, um, and European nations, all of the elements that I have just described of course undermine the security and stability of Europe. In sum, while many professionals are still working with, in good faith, day and night on collaborating with Europe, on keeping the peace and security in Europe, transactionalism and bilateralism have become the norm for this administration, and at worst, we are faced with a continual barrage of bullying and coercion in different forms. That is new. That is not something we have seen so far. We didn't see it in this way during the the crisis over the Iraq war. We haven't seen this in the context of Afghanistan. It's an entirely new framing for the American-European relationship. Now, it will not have escaped you that I think that Trump is wrong on some of these things. I think he is wrong in his hostility against international law, multilateralism, globalization, and free trade. I think he is deeply wrong in his support for illiberal authoritarians and ethno-nationalists, and I think he is deeply wrong in treating Europe as a subordinate to America's relationships with Russia and China. But there are a couple of things where I think he is right, and that I think is something we need to look at more carefully, and I think it ought to be a subject for discussion for the rest of the day where, regrettably, I I I will already have left. Where is he right? European defense spending. Of course we need to spend more on defense, and of course my country needs to spend more on defense. Of course we need new thinking on arms control and on trade. Yes, the EU is in crisis, and yes, NATO is at risk. The things that I have just described, the authoritarianism in Europe, the protectionism, the populism, all all these things are things happening in Europe without... American interference without Russian interference without Chinese interference although all these things are taking place we are perfectly capable of making these mistakes on our own and we need to address them on our own and of course we have taken the existence of international order abroad and liberal democracy at home for granted for many decades and that I think was also a mistake I'd like to quote Henry Kissinger here. I have this from an an article by Sten Renning, but it's a perfect quote for this moment. Trump may be one of these figures in history who appear from time to time to mark the end of an era and who force it to give up its old pretenses. That is, I think, a very accurate statement of where we are. Let me come now to what this means for Europe and what this means for NATO, perhaps also for my country and finally for you in Norway. I think we Europeans, all of us, and I hope you think of yourselves as Europeans, need to recognize that we are on the cusp of monumental changes political, economic, social, technological. This is not the time for old debates. It is not the time for business as usual. And while this American administration can attempt to deglobalize or coerce allies and adversaries, it will probably find out that it does so at enormous cost to itself. I think that American attempts to de and to coerce even its oldest friends come at a cost, and many of my American friends in Washington and even friends who work in the administration know that full well. But for us to try and uncouple ourselves from globalization, for us to turn ourselves into a fortress Europe or even international fortresses would be suicidal. We would be literally cutting off our lifeblood. We are too close to each other, too deeply integrated with each other, to pretend to ourselves that we can just build walls and pull up the drawbridges and then everything will be fine. In fact, it would be disastrous for us all. It would be the end of free trade, it would be the end of commerce between our societies, it would be the end of peace in Europe, of that I am firmly convinced. And so what that means to me is that for the first time in our post-war history as an alliance, I think that the the burden of existential interest in the preservation of international order, of the alliance, and of a Europe at peace is flipped. It is we Europeans who have an existential interest. It is on us that the responsibility rests to make sure that these achievements of our parents' and grandparents' generations are safeguarded. What does that then mean for NATO and for our role in it as Europeans? I agree. I think I heard your defense minister saying that U.S. disengagement or a U.S. preoccupation with the rest of the world did not begin with Trump, and that is entirely accurate. Of course, it began with Bush the younger and continued with Obama. It's only peaking now. And I personally think that the U.S. leaving NATO is quite unlikely, but I think it's extremely likely, in fact, happening now for it to be distracted and engaged elsewhere, not least with the security situation in the Pacific. <laughs> I do, however, also believe, and I think I've already tried to make there clear, that it is completely impossible to ring-fence NATO and our defense and security cooperation within it against the toxic impact of the trade and culture wars that I have just described. If there is distrust between us about on free trade and on authoritarianism, I don't know how we can preserve our defense cooperation and our intelligence cooperation from this. And in fact, if you talk to people at NATO, that is already happening. We are already seeing the tribalization and the Balkanization of intelligence and other cooperation at NATO, make no mistake. So to prevent American disengagement, we Europeans have to do two things. We need to finally prove that we are not free riders And we need to, I think, make it clearer than we have so far that we are protecting American interest in keeping Europe as a staging ground for their Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African engagement safe, as well as an an early warning system for the defense of the continental United States. This is in American interests. This is not just an alliance that is protecting Europe. It's protecting America as well. Let's not forget that the only time that Article 5 was ever invoked was by Europeans on September 12th on behalf of an America attacked by the Taliban. Or rather by Al-Qaeda, who were being hosted by, by the Taliban. The other thing that we need to do at NATO is, while we, while we as we keep our deterrence and our defenses stable, and fit for purpose, we need to recognize that what is the most probable acts of aggression, and in fact, the acts of aggression happening every day, and not just on election days, are measures short of war, interference in our political spaces, in our economies, and in our societies, by Russia, by China, and by others. What that means, of course, is that the European Union rather than being a foe of America, as Trump has called it, very misguidedly, is a crucial institutional framework for protecting against these measures short of war. That makes NATO-EU collaboration existential. And even countries who are not a member of the EU, like Norway, have a role to play here. It is also now existential for us to bridge the divides between the North and the South. You are a member, I think, of the so-called Northern Hanseatic League advocating fiscal austerity within Europe. I think you may have to ask yourselves whether you are not contributing to deepening a specific divide in Europe. (coughs) I'm as critical of the Italian budget as you are, probably, but I think we have to be very, very careful how we go about this. We also need to bridge the West-East divide in security perceptions. It is very difficult to talk in Paris or in Lisbon or in Madrid about what is happening in Eastern Europe and about the threats to the Baltics, to Ukraine and to Poland. That needs to change. Conversely, we need to take an interest in what is happening to the Southern European Mediterranean because of migration from Libya and elsewhere. If we fail to do that, we shouldn't be surprised at Italy getting the government that it has now. (coughs) We Europeans need to reclaim arms control and possibly a European nuclear deterrent as NATO issues. We have to at all costs prevent Russia reclaiming its sphere of interest in Eastern Europe or even over Eastern European NATO allies. This is occasionally discussed as a possibility, as an acceptable possibility in American literature. I don't need to name the names to you. And of course, and this is the most difficult issue of all, of course we need to address the issue of how we deal with illiberal authoritarians in NATO. In the EU, we have an Article 7 proceeding against Hungary we have proceedings against the Polish government for the way that they're trying to reorganize the court system. NATO, the NATO treaty does not provide for this kind of discussion, but we are going to have to find a framing to do that. Perhaps two final notes on, on Germany and, and, and Norway. My own country, you already said this Ulf, is, is in tran- transition now with the slow departure of Angela Merkel and that makes us even more inward-looking than we already are, which I regret. But we also know that if we are looking at situations at NATO where America is absent because it is distracted or engaged elsewhere for completely legitimate reasons, or if the American Congress or the American voters don't want America to solve even the smallest problems for us Europeans, then we are going to have to figure out who replaces the American backbone in, in certain kinds of NATO operations. Now, we all know that in the case of an all-out crisis or major war, we would not survive without American support. We can dismiss that, but I think that I also, that is also the least likely case right now. What we're, again, looking at mostly is measures short of war every day, and we're looking at small to medium-sized operations. And for that, we need major European nations to provide a backbone. And some of you who work on these issues professionally may be aware that the Germans have put forward this framework nations concept, which I think is a very useful way of trying to conceptualize a German role as a provider of major forces so that smaller nations can add um, specialized capabilities. Something that is less fully understood is that this also reduces Germany's ability to say no. For Germany to put itself forward as a framework nation means significantly reducing the political option of not being there. In other words, this is a much greater offer than people think. And I think you should take it seriously, you should engage with it constructively, and you should make sure it happens. Of course, in all this, political leadership is key. The military stuff, you know, you, you uh, generals and, and retired generals know how to do. It's the political leadership that is the real challenge. And I'm a big fan of this notion that friends of mine, Jan Tejo and Leon Mangasarian, have put forward, which they called servant leadership. That is what I think a great nation in Europe has to do, particularly one that is, like us, has, has the history that we have, and that is at the crossroads of Europe. We have to play the role of mediators between North and South, and East and West, and we have to do a better job at that. That means exercising responsibility beyond our borders, but also to do more at bridging the divides between France, between the UK that is leaving the EU, and also those North, South, and East, West divides that I've mentioned. And I would also add, do no harm, and in that I include our pipeline project. Finally, and my my last point, what does this all mean for Norway and the Nordics? As I already said, I know from my own conversations with your diplomats in Washington and elsewhere that you cherish your bilateral relationship with America. And we all have those bilateral relationships, and I think that that's important. But I think in these days, we also need to ask ourselves, whether the bilateralization of these defense relationships doesn't possibly also distract from or even undermine the multilateral frameworks in which we also work. In other words, bilateralization, yes, but not in a way that, that complicates our conversations as NATO and within the EU. This is also, dare I say, not the moment to cultivate intranordic differences. And you know what I'm talking about. I think that there is a real, real need now from the rest of us Europeans for the Nordics to act as a group, if you possibly can. And not just in regional security, where you have a very real role to play and where I would like to see greater engagement from Germany, both in the North Sea and in the Baltic Sea, than we have now. But I think I would also like the Nordics and Norway to put... To come with creative ideas, projects, ideas for bridging the differences that I talked about. My greatest worry, frankly, is that all of us withdraw in, into our little narcissism of minor difference, that all of us withdraw into our little security preoccupations that are local and regional and think that the Italians will take care of Libya, of Libya somehow and this, that the Spanish will somehow deal with northern African immigration, and that is very far away, and it shouldn't bother you. If the southern part of the alliance crumbles, you will find that that will very much become a concern for the north. And I think we, my greatest concern, and the thought that I want to leave you with, is that we need to rediscover a sense of solidarity for each other's security concerns, and a sense of belief in Europe as a project for all of us in which all of us have a home and where we try and empathize and share with each other's preoccupations. That, to me, is the single greatest worry that I have. I think if we can manage that, then we can manage all the other issues. And with that, I'm going to leave you and say I'm happy to answer your questions and, um, and, and, and comments if you have them. Um, I'm very grateful to have been given the time to speak to you here. I hope it's been of interest. If not, tell me. Thank you.